Morning, church. Welcome to 2020. If you have a copy of God's Word, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 1 this morning. The Gospel of Mark will be our guide in the next months of the year 2020. Is it just me? But something about saying welcome to the year 2020 seems a little strange, a little surreal. Anybody feel that? Something about living in, in a, a year where science fiction would, would be the essence of, of, of who we are. I, I, I can't think of 2020 without thinking of me as a 10-year-old watching the Jetsons, thinking that by the year 2020, everything George Jetson was experiencing, I, David Eldridge, would experience. So I thought by the year 2020 as a 10-year-old that for certain we'd be driving flying cars, but to no avail. Do you remember watching the Jetsons? He would wake up in the morning, there was this automated assembly line, and he would get on the assembly line, and the assembly line would brush his teeth, and it would would shave him, and then his clothes would be draped upon him, and off he would go to work in his flying cars. But do you have that at your house? I don't have that at my house. So... So another thing that the Jetsons have not proved to come to fruition, I, I, I thought we would have Rosie. Do you remember Rosie, the, the robot, fully automated, household made there, Rosie? The, the closest that we've gotten to Rosie is uh, a Roomba. You know, you can, you can have the, the Roomba get one living room, and I don't have a Roomba. I, I've got Alexa and we, we, we've gone to Hey Google now, so I can, get, I can get some voice in the sky to play a Spotify playlist. But that's about the closest I've gotten to Rosie in 2020. I tell you, there, there's something about getting to the year 2020 that seems that it's sort of anticlimactic, especially when you think about what people were predicting by the year 2020. In 1965, there was a futurist, a science writer by the name of Arthur Clarke, who predicted that by this year, 2020, we would all be living in flying, hovering homes. My house doesn't fly. Yours doesn't. I would avail that up. Have you ever seen the movie Up, that cartoon? I love that movie. He, Mr. Clark, he had a flying house. But most of us do not have flying. Mr. Carl was his name in Up. He, he had a flying house. John Watkins 1900, the Smithsonian Institute, he predicted that it would be three letters that would be obsolete by the year 2020. Can you, can you imagine what three letters that would be? Just think to yourself, what three letters would we not use by the year 2020? Think of what he would have thought of in 1900. Most of you might have thought of the letter X. He thought X, he thought Q, and he also thought C. So I guess can would be with a K, cat would be with a K. You get the point here. Michael Farrell, writing for the Mobile Institute, not that long ago, in 1985, he actually predicted that the, the everyday experience of Star Trek, Beam Me Up, Scotty, would be a part of our existence in 2020. So he predicted that teleportation would be a part of our transportation modes in 2020. So with those kinds of bold predictions... It's sort of anticlimactic to live in 2020, but all of us that are here that have any decades behind us can see how much has changed, but we also simultaneously, if we're to be honest, could say how much hasn't changed. You know what hasn't changed as we move into this new decade? 
you know what hasn't changed as we move into 2020? The, the most important and vital question that you can ask and answer in your life. And you know what that is? It was true in 50 AD and 100 AD. It was tr- true in 1900 and 1950. It's true in 2020 and it's true beyond. And that question is, who is Jesus? And how you answer that question, not only today, but in the years to come, is the most vital question for you to answer. C.S. Lewis very helpfully in his book, Mere Christianity, he said that all of us have to answer who is Jesus. Now, there's some false answers to that. Some of us are tempted to say that Jesus was just a great moral example, but he doesn't give us that opportunity in the Gospels. No. Some of us are tempted to say he was just a great moral teacher, but no, he doesn't give us that opportunity because the Gospel has a clear picture of who Jesus is, the eternal Son of God come to rescue us from our sins. So in light of who he says that he is in his gospel, we must answer the question, who do we say he is? Lewis helpfully said that we can answer that question in three ways. One is, he said that he was the eternal son of God come to rescue us from our sins. Either he was a liar, either he was a lunatic, or if what he said is true, he is Lord. How? Are you answering this most pressing question, who is Jesus? Mark's gospel so clearly portrays that for us. It asks that question and it answers that question from the very outset. You turn to Mark chapter 1. You have not in the opening uh, words of Mark's gospel, Jesus, but rather you have the opening act. The opening act only has one song. The Gospel of Mark isn't about the opening act. No one comes to the Gospel of Mark to hear the opening act sing. But one song John the Baptist sings, and that song is the song of repentance. That song of repentance ushers us into this pivotal moment in Jesus' ministry that really defines for us who he is. Who is Jesus? In Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, we read his baptism which reads, as you have it in your copy of God's Word, in those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove and a voice coming from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Look with me at verse 10. Notice that adverb there, immediately. That that word immediately is one of Mark's go-to words. All throughout the Gospels, you're going to hear immediately, immediately, immediately. Mark does, he's not verbose. He's not wordy. He doesn't waste words. He gets to the heartbeat. We, We don't have, like Matthew's Gospel has for us, what? A genealogy that ushers us in to the person of Jesus. We've spent this whole Advent season looking at the stories of, of the Old Testament prophets that prophesied of the babe in the manger, of the angels that would go to the shepherds, of the wise men who would come bearing gifts. None of that for Mark. Mark has Jesus as a grown man going immediately into his ministry. Mark wants us to see clearly who is Jesus. Now, it isn't that Mark doesn't know these stories, but under the providential inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he organizes his gospel account as a complementary account to John's gospel, to Matthew's gospel, to Luke's gospel. 
And he answers so clearly from the very outset, who is Jesus? And when we are his, ultimately the way you answer that question is who you are. Who is Jesus? Well, he is, number one this morning, the fulfillment of God's plan. Again, look with me at verse 10 of Matthew chapter 1, focusing upon this baptismal scene. Now, some of you grew up in Baptist context. Some of you were saved as I was. I was saved in a a Baptist church. I heard the gospel for the first time in a Baptist church. Some of you are uh, have taught Sunday school, and, and, and you've, you've heard lessons, you've heard sermons on the baptism of Jesus. And so a passage like this, it is easy for us to say, oh, I, I know exactly what we're going to hear about this morning. That word baptized in the original language means to be immersed. Jesus is our model, so believers' baptism through immersion is what is spoken of in this passage. So we accept Christ and we're baptized, and all of that is true. All of that is true, but, but you can preach that message, you can uh, teach that lesson, and if we leave it with just Jesus as a model of our baptism, we can leave this passage without getting to the very heartbeat of why Mark has it here by telling us clearly that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's plan. Notice again in verse 10, there is a phrase here that I want you to ponder with me this morning. When Jesus came up out of the water, immediately, what is the first thing that he sees? He sees the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Well, if Mark, in his Gospels, doesn't mince words, he doesn't waste words, he's not verbose, every word counts. So in this passage here, there is something that is occurring that is remarkable. The heavens are being torn open. What is happening on earth in Jesus' baptism is so dynamic, is so glorious, that the earth's atmosphere cannot contain the grandeur of this event. What's occurring in Jesus' baptism is Mark saying what the Old Testament prophets were predicting and longing for is actually come to fruition here in Jesus' baptism. The gospel writers, the only way to understand the gospel writers is to understand that they are ripe with Old Testament allusions. They're, they're all of the gospels are ripe with echoes and allusions to the Old Testament. So right here in Jesus' baptism, you hear the echo of the prophet Isaiah. You see it on the screen. Isaiah chapter 64. Notice the word of verse 1. Oh, that you. This is Isaiah. Hundreds of years before the coming of Jesus Christ, in the midst of trouble and confusion, a divided kingdom, enemies creeping in upon him, the prophet is longing for a time when what? When you would rend the heavens, open the heavens, come down that the mountains might quake at your presence. So Mark says, in Mark chapter 1, Isaiah, what you longed for, what you hoped for, what you were looking for hundreds of years before the coming of Jesus, it has come to pass as heaven has opened up and the Spirit has descended and my eternal Son is coming to make a way between sinful humanity and a holy God. What Isaiah longed for is coming to pass here. The silence is broken. There's a silence between Malachi and Matthew. 
The last book of the Old Testament is the prophet Malachi. You have approximately 480 years, almost 500 years, where in our Bible, we do not have a prophet that is recorded there. History that's occurring, no doubt. But the silence of God is broken. And it's broken with the rending of heaven to send down His Son to be a Savior for all who would trust in Him. That word, that word torn apart is one word in the original language of the New Testament. Schism is the word. And it can be translated ripped apart. Why why that word, Mark? Well, think about this. I mean, if you have a, a jacket with a zipper on it, you, you come into a place that's cold outside, you walk into the uh, warm uh, home that you enter in, you uh, unzip your jacket, you take it off. You leave to go back out into the cold, you put your jacket on, you zip it up. Mark could have utilized a word that was close to that. He, he doesn't say the heavens were unzipped to be zipped back. No, the heavens were ripped apart forevermore to show us that God's desire is for we, humanity, to have a relationship with Him. There is a path that is made between us, sinful humanity, and the coming of His Son, Jesus Christ. There's one more time in Mark's Gospel where he utilizes this one word. Only only one more time. Where, Where do you think that that would have been? One time where this word schism is used again. You know where it's used? It's used when the centurion professes that this is the Son of God. And the veil in the temple that separates humanity from the Holy of Holies. You know what happened to that veil? From the top to the bottom, there was a schism. It was ripped apart. What does that signify? Well, a path has been made between man and God. That there is a way from us as sinful humans, to have a relationship with the God of the heaven. This is a powerful reminder for all of us that are here that a path has been made, that there are barriers between us and a holy God. There's the barrier of sin. But guess what? God is more powerful than the barrier of sin. And through His Son, He's made a way that there is a barrier of Satan. That barrier separates us from a holy God. But guess what? God is so powerful that he's made a way. He's made a way through death. He's made a way through Satan. He's made a way through sin. That nothing can separate us from the love of God when we are in Christ Jesus. This is good news. Good news. Uh, This last Christmas, we got to do what a lot of you got to do, which is to go visit family. And when we go to visit family, one of the things that my boys really, really enjoy going and doing is to go to my in-laws home they have uh, kind of this forest area behind them they have this uh, mule Kawasaki mule that they can get on and drive on all these trails and all these paths well they bought this and they it's family land and so they've had it just recently my uh, uncle by marriage my wife's uncle my boy's great uncle it's his land and so he loves going to this densely forested area like many of you maybe have done, and he, and he just makes trails. And so, you know, the first thing that Uncle Gerald said to my boys when we showed up, he said, boys, come with me. i got to show you some new trails. i got to show you some new trails. And they love, they love I tell you this, they, 
three boys, and they're all these girl cousins. And so my sons love getting the cousins that are girls on the mule and getting all this mud all over them. So it's just like a fun thing that we don't have any experience with here with all these boys. And one of the things that's always amazing to me is, is you can go into this forested area and you can just say, how in the world can you make a trail? It is so dense. The brush is so heavy. But my Uncle Gerald, he can make way. And he's made these trails. Now, it's a trite illustration to show you that there is nothing that is so dense. There is nothing that is so heavy that would separate us from a relationship with God God, through his Son, has blazed a path for us to follow. If any of us in this room desire to have a relationship with him, Jesus is the fulfillment of God's plan. But notice also in this passage here that as we see that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's plan, we also see the Spirit in God's plan. Verse 10, unique passage here as we read, When he came up, that's Jesus, out of the water, Immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. In the Gospel accounts, you have unique times where the three persons, the the triune God, three in one, one in three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they intersect our earthly existence. Here you have God the Father speaking, you have Jesus being baptized, and you have the Spirit descending, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, at this climactic moment. What's powerful about this passage is, is it echoes, it echoes to us the Old Testament background. When, when is another time where the Spirit was hovering over creation? Well, it was there in Genesis 1 where the Spirit of God was a part of creation, and in the creation of all the world, there is the Spirit there. And here we have in Mark chapter 1, a recreation, a new creation that is going to be done in and through His Son, Jesus Christ. So it's not surprising to us that the Spirit would come down upon Jesus, not only as an authentication of His work, but also a reminder to us that when we follow Jesus, guess what happens? The Spirit stoops. The Spirit descends. The same Spirit that was present in Genesis chapter 1, the same Spirit that descends upon Jesus at his baptism, when you trust in Jesus as your Savior, you know what occurs? The Spirit of God descends upon you. And this, this is powerful, glorious news. Because when Jesus says, I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you, you know what he does? He ascends to the right-hand throne of the Father. You can't go to Subway. This afternoon, walk in and see the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, sitting there eating a meal. No, you can't. So how is he with us? How is he always present? Well, he's present through the coming of his Spirit. And when you trust him, that same Spirit fills you, seals you, leads you, guides you, comforts you, convicts you, will bring about your sanctification, and he will not be finished with you until you meet God the Father in heaven through your death or in heaven through his second coming. Now, why this is helpful is so much in life doesn't get finished. Did you feel that? over the Christmas break, that you, you just had this laundry list of things to get done that was just an endless list that you just thought to yourself, I'm not really sure I'm going to be able to get all of this done. This happens in life. 
Even with the best intentions, there, there, there are work projects and home projects that we cannot complete. Did you see that show? It's been various iterations of it on these home improvement uh, networks. But Mike Holmes is a contractor, no-nonsense kind of guy, who is a renovation interventionist. And what occurs is, is the contractor doesn't fulfill the obligations of the new construction or, or, or a well-meaning couple just get over their head in, in their lack of ability to finish what they thought was going to be a little small kitchen renovation. And so they're living in the midst of their dust. They're living in the midst of a bathroom that didn't get renovated or a kitchen that didn't get renovated. And the premise of the show is Mike Holmes drops in and he is the one that is going to bring about the completion of that renovation. And it is at times, it is at times tempting to think that the renovation completion is dependent upon you and me in our soul in our life. That God saves us and he says this to us, do the best you can. I'll save you, but all the rest of your life, it's there with you. But the Spirit reminds us, as Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. So know the same spirit that descends upon Jesus is the same spirit that lives inside of you and is conforming you each and every day more and more into his image. So you and me, we are works in progress. And that's why you should be more patient. That's why you should be more patient with your co-workers. That's why you should be more patient with your children. That's why you should be more patient with your spouse. Is because at the end of the day, all of us that are sitting next to us, in, uh, sitting next to one another in pews, that we have a, a general contractor in God the Father who utilizes, he, he subs out the work to his Son and to his Spirit, and the Spirit of God is always doing that work in you and will bring it to completion. So notice with me that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's plan. Notice with me this first Sunday of 2020 that we see the Spirit of God in God's plan. And finally this morning, hear the loving voice of God's plan. Verse 11, we hear the voice of God the Father speaking. And what does God the Father say? A voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son, with you, I am well pleased. This is one of the unique times in the gospel accounts that we hear the Father directly addressing the Son. And how does he address him? Not as, go get him. Do your best, Jesus. No, his moment of, of, of speaking into the earthly existence of the second part, his eternal Son, is to say, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. For Mark, this is the gun that goes off at the start of the race. Jesus' ministry is immediately, in Mark's words, going to occur. This is the starting line. He is going to heal the blind in the race ahead. He is going to heal a leper in the race ahead. He's going to call disciples in the race ahead. He's going to cast out demons. He's going to teach from the synagogue in Nazareth. All of this in the race ahead. But the starting line, the gun that goes off, is this voice from heaven that says, This is my son. 
and I'm well pleased with him. Now, historically, that's really important. Because if there is a 500-year silence between Malachi and Matthew, if the Old Testament prophets are predicting the coming of the Messiah, you, 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 you would be best to know that there are many people historically that said, I'm the Messiah. There were a lot of Messiah pretenders who rose up and said, all the people that the Old Testament prophets predicted of, I am that fulfillment, I am the fruition of that. And so they were Messiah wannabes, they were Messiah pretenders. And so the voice of God coming from heaven is the divine authentication of the Father saying to all who would hear, John the Baptist and all the onlookers, the person that's being baptized, he is the one that Isaiah spoke of. He is the Messiah. This is my divine stamp of certification upon his identity. What did you get for Christmas? What, what did you give for Christmas presents? At our house, uh, two things that were given were some posters to our youngest child. One, this is sort of the season of life that we're in right now with our eight-year-old. He gets a Mandalorian Baby Yoda poster, and so that was there. And then also, the shortstop for the Chicago Cubs is Javi Baez. So he's got a Javi Baez poster. Hangs up the Javi Baez poster, tacks it up on his wall. A couple days later, we were in his room, and he said, Dad, 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 come here, come here, come here, come here, come here, come here. Look at this, look at this. And right by the figure of Javi Baez, shortstop for the Chicago Cubs, swinging, there is a signature. And so he said to me, Dad, did you know that Javi Baez signed this poster? I mean, he was going to make money off of this. I mean, he, he was going gonna to cash it in. He was going to put it on uh, the eBay. Yeah, amen. He was going to cash it into the eBay sports memorabilia site, and he's going to make some money off of this. And so I had to unfortunately inform him, unfortunately inform him that that isn't the authentic signature of Javi Baez. It's just, it's just a copy. And so he's not going to make as much money as he thought. So we hung it back up there. And, and uh, he was not going to pay for college or anything like that. So we got into this long discussion about how do you know that the baseball that you hold is actually the real signature and not a copy? How do you know that the jersey that you hold is not a fraud but is authentic? And so we had a good discussion about what? We had a good discussion about certification and authentication. You know, when you buy a ball that is signed, a baseball signed by a, a famous sports hero, when you get that football or that basketball or that baseball, you best have next to it a certificate of authenticity. There's a third-party authority that stands above. So you're not dependent upon the person that sold it to you saying, I promise you, Mickey Mantle, sign this. I promise you, Babe Ruth, sign this. I promise you, I promise you, this is Bo Jackson's autograph here. No, you don't have to take that person's word for it. You take a greater third-party authority that is beyond, that gives to you a Certificate of authenticity that says, yes, it is what it is being claimed to be. And so it isn't that Jesus comes at his baptism and says, I'm God's beloved. He's well pleased with me. No, there is the Father 
who serves as that divine stamp of authentication, saying from the heavens, this is my son. Now, we're tempted to end the sermon there, right? We're tempted to just move on and say, that's who Jesus is, and now we move on. But I want us to just ponder one more truth this morning, that how do we understand who we are in light of who Jesus is? When you walk through Paul's letters, one of the frequent ways that he describes himself is what? In Christ, in Christ, in Christ. A shorthand for Paul, for what it means to be a Christian, are those two words that you are in Christ. So anything that is Jesus's is yours. That as you're in Christ, what he has done has been given to you. So as followers of Jesus, we listen to the baptismal words that the Father blesses his son with. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. And you know what this means? This means that God the Father says this for each and every one of us that are followers of his. That what is said over the Son is said over you because you are in Christ. On the first Sunday of 2020, this makes all the difference. You remember a few years ago, uh, Whitney Houston passed away. Whitney Houston, the acclaimed vocalist, kind of the height of, of fame. She dusted off Dolly Parton's song, I Will Always Love You, and sold more singles than anyone in history had done. I mean, it is that type of acclaim, that type of fame, that type of success. She passed away, and I was flipping through the channels one day a few years ago, and I saw her service, and one of her co-stars from that movie, The Bodyguard, was given a eulogy, Kevin Costner. And I paused, and I listened to what Kevin Costner said about Whitney Houston. It was very revealing. He said this, that the height of her fame, at the pinnacle of her success and her wealth, that on the set that she was plagued by a fear that she wasn't good enough, that she wasn't pretty enough or talented enough, that she wouldn't measure up. And he said that she, she was a scared woman looking to please, looking to fit in, to be accepted. And then, he, and then he paused and he said to the grieving family and friends that had gathered, deep down, I suspect that all of us in our own ways share that fear. And I think it's true that, that all of us hunger for an assurance that we're loved. All of us hunger for an assurance that we measure up. You are created with this innate desire, this innate need to be valued, to be loved. And many of the motivations in your life, the motivations of, of school, the motivations of career, the motivations of what you say and what you do, is to ultimately hear, I love you and I am proud of you. And because we don't live in the Garden of Eden, there are times where there are sons and daughters who had longed for the clarity of I love you and I'm proud of you from an earthly father or an earthly mother. There are times because we don't get married in the Garden of Eden that there are those that are the closest to us that leave us or betray us and, and we long to hear I love you and I am proud of you. 
think if we listen and if we're honest in the recesses of even the most outwardly successful people in this sanctuary, at the funeral of Whitney Houston is ultimately a young boy, a young girl, wondering, do I measure up? Am I good enough? And so, follower of Jesus, I want you to listen closely this morning. I want you to hear the voice of God's divine approval washing over you as the waters of the Jordan washed over his son at his baptism. Jesus says to you, you are my beloved and you I take delight. There was a movie that had its soundtrack country music song. Do you remember this movie, Urban Cowboy? Johnny Lee, a country music singer, he, he had a song that went like this, looking for love in all the wrong places, looking for love in too many faces. Mark could have started his gospel with a genealogy like Matthew, but he doesn't. He could have started his gospel like Luke does with an account of Jesus' birth we could have gotten the manger. We could have gotten the angels uh, going into the fields to the shepherd, but he doesn't. He could have started like John with this theological reflection. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, but he doesn't. What he gives to us as a compliment to the other Gospels and as a truth to us is this resounding, clarion call of your identity and my identity in Christ. Beloved Christian, no matter what you believe today, you are loved by your Father. Beloved Christian, no matter your mistakes, you are his beloved. Christian, no matter how far you've run away, you are his beloved. No matter your insecurities, you are his beloved. No matter your circumstances, you are his beloved. You are his beloved son. With you, he is well pleased. We don't have to go looking for love. Love has come to us in the person of Jesus. And for each and every one of us that would trust in him, we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we are his. Let us pray. So God, we come to you this morning thankful for this truth. We pray that you would allow us to relish in it. For those of us that need to be reminded of this truth of our identity in you, for those of us that are in the sanctuary that are hearing this for the first time, may we be reminded that apart from you, we can do nothing. But in Christ, we are loved. We are loved no matter what we think about that. This truth is paved away. It is made away even through the hardness of our own heart. So I pray that we would bask in that divine voice of approval that sings over us in the midst of our insecurities, in the midst of our strivings, in the midst of searching for love in all the wrong places. May we be reminded that love has come down in Jesus to capture our wandering hearts. May today be a day that we once again 
once again thank you that you, God, sent your Son to be our rescuer. We pray this in his name, your Son and our Savior, Jesus. Amen.